I've got four questions that uh, I'm going to ask uh, Bill, and he comes up here to speak. He has been to a lot of different churches and, and spoken, and done this interview style, even in churches that he's pastored as well. And I think you're really going to be blessed uh, by what he has to share. Maybe just, although he's a missionary and lived a little bit different lives than, than we do on a daily basis, I believe what he's going to share is really going to impact us and even help us answer some questions in our own life like, what is God calling me to do, and how do I know if I'm moving in the right path? But what I'd love for you to do is to give, help me in giving Bill Vasey a warm welcome all the way from Wisconsin. Thank you. Well, Bill, would you like to give yourself an, an introduction to these people? Uh, well, I'll tell you, I am really excited to be here this morning with you, Josh. Thank you for the invitation. Thank you for your friendship, and I'd like to thank your church family. Um, there has been a representative group from this church that has gone to Guatemala now several different trips, and if that is a sampling of the quality of people that you have in your church, I want to tell you that I am impressed. And uh, anybody from this church would be welcome in Quiche, Guatemala, at any time you want to come. Uh, you're just genuine wholesome, God-loving people, and committed to the cause of Christ around the world. And I thank you for that, and thank you for sending your folk, and the effort and the prayer and um, the finances as well that you send down to help us out is just tremendous, and it's a blessing. So I appreciate that, and I wanted to say that right up front, okay? God bless all of you for that. Thank you. Did you want your... uh... Your wife to say anything? Well, uh, <laughs> I'm just joking. I don't think I think she'd kill me if we brought yeah. her. Here. Uh, yeah, this this is actually my high school sweetheart. We uh, we dated for six years, all through high school and the first couple of years of college, and then um, through my personal bonehead decisions, we kind of split apart. And then uh, after my career as a missionary, we kind of got back together through double knee replacement surgery that I had at Loyola University in Chicago. She came down to visit me, and then uh, uh, the Lord brought us all back together after 50-some years of being apart, and we've been married for two years now. So meet Joyce, my high school sweetie. Stand up, honey. She keeps him in line. <laughs> right. Uh-huh. Well, I have a, a series of uh, four questions that I'm going to ask Bill, and he's going to answer. And so we'll just kick it off. And uh, the first question, uh, Bill and I talked through these and things that he definitely wanted to share and maybe even questions that uh, we all have of missionaries. How did you get there? How did you know you wanted to do this? Uh, How did you pick the place? What motivated you? Those kind of things. And he's going to talk through them. And I know you're going to be blessed. So here's the first question, Bill. Uh, What motivated you to become a missionary? I'm a preacher's kid. Are there any preacher's kids here? Raise your hand if you're a preacher's kid. Okay. So you kind of know what I'm talking about. We're kind of raising a fishbowl. And uh, in a small town in southwest Wisconsin where my father pastored. And uh, I, I kind of sensed this, although it wasn't anything that was really overt. It was kind of just in me that there was pressure on me to perform from an early age. And having been a preacher's kid, I was exposed to missions. Our church believe in missions. I'm from a primitive Methodist church. Uh, not too many probably have heard about that, but we come out of the same holiness tradition that the Assembly of God comes out of, and uh, very, very similar in doctrine and approach to the scriptures. And, uh, and, and so I was raised in this kind of hothouse environment, 
and um, I, I kind of rebelled against that. I, I wasn't your typical preacher's kid or what was expected to be the typical preacher's kid. I pray for little Carson every day, okay? <laughs> I just, you know, that, that young man is, is, is going to become a target. And so uh, you respond to these kinds of things in different ways. My mom tells a story. By the way, she's still living. She's 93 years of age. My daddy will be 97 next month and just, just love him to death. But they're the people that uh, modeled and mentored me in my early faith in Christ. And mom tells a story about dad pastoring a church in Newcastle, Pennsylvania, and it's built like this one. The, the back pews are higher than the front pews, and I got away from mom. My brother Kenny was next to me. My sister was sitting on my mom's lap. I got away from mom crawling underneath of the pews on that Sunday morning, okay, back in the days when you didn't have nice uh, seats like you have today. And I'm busily picking off the soft gum underneath of the pews, okay. And by the time I got to the front of the church, I had a mouthful, okay. <laughs> And, and so uh, that didn't really set too well with the board of directors of the church. And I guess they brought it up. And uh, my mom happened to be present, and she responded this way. She said, well, if my son can eat somebody else's already chewed gum, there isn't anything in the world that he couldn't eat as a missionary that won't set well with him. So he's in missionary training. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, that was there from the very beginnings. I didn't realize this until I was 27 years of age and already two years in my missionary career in Guatemala. I got a letter from my dad. My dad wrote me every Monday. I would get a letter from dad, usually a couple weeks later, you know, slow mail to Guatemala. And he wrote me after several years in Guatemala, and she said, he said to me, before you were born, I placed my hands on mom's belly when she was pregnant, when she knew, you're the firstborn, and I gave you to God. And I wanted God to call you to the mission field. I did not know that until I was 27 years of age. And so uh, God had his hand upon me from before I was born. I tell people that I was a primitive Methodist before I was born. Uh, and, and, and so, you know, you pregnant moms that come with your children inside of you know about that. And, and, and that environment, that context, there, it's just it's unbelievable what God can do in the heart of a sincere, humble mom who gives their unborn child to God and both parents. And so uh, that's where I'm coming from, okay? That kind of a background. And uh, like I say, I rebelled against it. I, I didn't find Christ until I was really 15 years of age at a summer camp in northern Wisconsin put on by uh, some missionaries called Rural Bible Crusade. You learn 250 scripture verses, and you get to go to camp for free. And that really appealed to my daddy, you know, who didn't make much as a preacher back then. And so I went to camp for several years in a, in a row. And one summer, there was a missionary from the country of India, and, you know, I can still remember the courses that he taught us in the language of the people over there. But uh, he was a small college, all-American, championship basketball player, went to William & Mary University when it was a Division II school. And, and uh, this guy had a contract to play with the Minneapolis Lakers. And here he was from the country of India, turned down a $10,000 signing bonus back then for the Minneapolis Lakers, and that's a long time ago, okay? And he went to prepare himself to become a missionary. And that really was attractive to me, because I was into athletics, I loved sports, played football, basketball, and baseball, and this guy, who was just a strong character, gave it all up, what would have been you know, an, an ideal for a kid, uh, to, to be a professional player, to serve the Lord as a missionary. And I thought, how could you? But, but uh, the commitment 
and, and the sacrifice and uh, his lifestyle. And, and every night after the rest of the kids were gone to bed, there was four or five of us guys who just bang with him on the basketball court. And his way of, of just living his life, totally committed to Christ, was attractive to me. And, and on Friday night around a bonfire, I went forward and I gave my life to Christ. And one of the things that was said that night, you put a little stick on the fire, symbolizing your life burning out for the cause of Christ. And I did that, uh, following his example and his leadership. And, uh, and these are the things that, that impressed me. Reading the books uh, uh, after 1956, January of 1956, in Life magazine, when it was still a black and white magazine, came out with pictures of the missionaries that were killed in Ecuador, Jim Elliott, Nate Saint, Ed McCauley, Roger Udarian, and those fellas, okay? And, and reading the books that came out about them afterward really impacted me. And that's why I went to Wheaton College, prepared myself in anthropology and linguistics to go to the mission field. And uh, from early age, that has been, you know, where I'm coming from. I think maybe I hit the question. I don't know. You did. Way better than I could. Um, so the next obvious question, I think, is uh, why Guatemala? How did you get there? How did you pick that spot? That's a, that's a, that's a good question, uh, Josh. Um, uh, my junior year, in the summer of my junior year, between my junior and senior year of college, uh, we had an opportunity to do some summer missions project, and I was selected to go to the Northwest Territories of Canada and work with missionaries that summer uh, to get their firewood for their winter supply. Of course, the winters are quite long up there. And so uh, in the morning, the missionary wife would prepare a sack lunch for me. I took a, a small chainsaw in an, uh, a little canoe with an outboard motor on it and uh, went out to uh, an area where the, he had marked some trees that were already down and dried. I cut the limbs and cut it into chunks. That was my job for the whole summer. So I was exposed you know, uh, to, to, to missions. I wanted to go to the Northwest Territories to help him out. He was translating the scriptures for an Athabascan tribe of Indians. I was studying anthropology and linguistics, preparing myself now, having been called of God in the fifth grade, you know, to, 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 to go to the mission. Even before I got saved, I was called to be a missionary, if you can imagine that, okay? And so um, uh, one of the things that turned me on in the fifth grade was my Catholic uh, school teacher, I was in a public school, taught me about uh, diagramming sentences. I don't know if they still do that in school anymore. How many of you actually remember diagramming sentences? You know, and and it, it really all does fit together, and it's logical, it's meaningful. And that turned me on to language in the fifth grade and followed through my college career in studying linguistics. And so I wanted to go to the Northwest Territories, uh, but th- that... I applied to the mission board, and they sent back a letter telling me that they had plenty of missionaries for, the, for then. Would I consider going to a different area? Well, um, I was a primitive Methodist. I was actually pastoring and starting a church in Hyde Park, New York at the time. And uh, during those two and a half years of ministry in Hyde Park, New York, there was an opportunity that opened up for a work in Guatemala amongst Indians who had no Bible and no converts. And that was very attractive to me. So it came through my denomination then that the field in Guatemala opened up. And I uh, went to Guatemala with my young family, two children, my wife, who's a nurse, and we traveled from Wisconsin 
to Guatemala in a Chevy Carriol, 1969 Chevy Carriol, with my dad's trailer on the back of it, with all of our worldly goods in tow. My daughter was two years old and my son was six months. He was in a little basket on the way down to Guatemala. And that's how we went. I was 25 years old. And so uh, arrived in Guatemala and the missionaries that were part of the primitive Methodist denomination there uh, allowed me to travel around the country and just kind of open my heart up and pray and, and seek the Lord about where I, I would be located. They had targeted several different areas. And the missionary that took me from Sacualpa over to Hoyavac in the central highlands of the tiny country of Guatemala, uh, he took me to the hill looking down into this immense valley. And he said, Tom Hayes, his name, Tom said to me, Bill, he said, if you feel that God is moving upon your heart to come here. As far as your eye can see, there are no churches. There are no believers. It's 90% Mayan Indians. They speak an unusual dialect of K'iche. This would be your responsibility, and this is where you could spend the rest of your life. And it was at that time that God spoke to my heart and told me, this is why you were born. You're here now. And I have brought you here and prepared you for this. And so that's how God moved upon me to choose Hoyavach uh, in the Quiche department of the central highlands of the country of Guatemala and ministered there for 42 years. Amazing, huh? I've heard that story multiple times and it still brings tears to my eyes. Uh, so I've already told the church about your translation of the Bible and learning that language. And so uh, the question that, that you and I talked about, and I think a lot of people, is how did you do it, uh, and why did you do it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, again, going back to my past, I read the, the stories about Jim Elliott and Nate Saint and those guys amongst the Auca Indians in the country of Ecuador, and how uh, their, their initial uh, penetration into that tribe uh, was when they were killed. And of course, uh, their wives had been trained in linguistics and trained at, in anthropology at Wheaton College as well. And their idea was to, to translate the scriptures. Um, Nate Saint's sister, Rachel Saint, was actually the main translator of the Auka language. She had learned the language and later on ended up translating the New Testament. And having read about those things, I thought to myself, wow. How awesome is that, being able to learn a previously unwritten language, reduce it to writing, and then actually translating the Word of God. You know, you were singing this morning about some things that you believe. I believe in God the Father. I believe in the Son of God. I believe in the Holy Spirit, three in one. I believe in the resurrection. And all of those things that we sang about are recorded for us in God's book. And not all of the people of the world had God's book. And some of them don't even have it yet today. There's still languages out there that are unwritten. Minority languages, of course. But they still don't have a written language. And you know, uh, the word of God is still the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. And in order to be able to understand and know what this kingdom of God is all about and and who Jesus is, it's recorded for us in this book here, uh, the scriptures. This is the 
inerrant word of God. This is without, without error. It's come to us. And we discover in here the meaning of our lives and what the future is and what awaits us by simply choosing to believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that God raised him from the dead. If you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart the Lord Jesus, you shall be saved. That's the promise of the Word of God. And not all of the cultures of the world know that. And they don't know that because they don't have a copy of the Word of God. What more important thing could I do with my life than investing it in the learning and the reducing to writing and then the actual translation of the scriptures in the, word, in, in, in the language of, of someone, a people that didn't have that. And so that's what I wanted, okay, after God called me. I believe that God does not always call the equipped. Does not always call the gifted. But he will always equip. He will always gift the called. If you're called of God, you will receive from him, sometimes even supernaturally, like it was in my case. I flunked German in college. I'm not a natural born linguist. But God gifted me at the time that I needed it because I responded positively to the call of God upon my life. You know, I think that's it helps us to understand the real definition of faith, okay? You, you, you know the voice of God inside of you, and when you respond positively to that, you probably don't have any resources at all to accomplish what he's called you to do. But he will be faithful. And we talked about that in the songs this morning, too. And, and, and God is faithful, and he will provide you with what you need to accomplish what he's called you to do. And that is so true in my particular case, okay? This, this particular volume happens to be the 500th, and I just found this out recently, the 500th Bible ever produced in the languages of the world. I did this with the help of about 13 or 14 different Mayan Quiche speakers in the town of Hoyabach. I learned their language. I carried three-by-five cards like we were taught to do in college in my pocket until I had what I thought was all of their words down. Then I organized them and categorized them. And then I listened to all of the sounds. And then I reduced all of those sounds to an alphabet. I adapted the alphabet as closely as I could to the Spanish alphabet because that is the national language of the country. And I figured it would be probably more acceptable to the government because you had to have the government's approval. I actually sat in the office of the president of the country of Guatemala at that time to have him sign a document with the alphabet that God helped me create for these people so that we could actually print anything in that language. Okay, And this happened in 1972, which is not too long ago. So for the first time, these people had an official language. You see, they believed that what they spoke before their language became official, what they did was they talked like animals. They communicated like cows do, like horses do, because that's what they were taught by the ruling class, the Spanish-speaking people of the country. Nothing in their language was ever in print. They didn't hear their language communicated on the television sets or from the radios. And so they didn't really have a real language. You know, I went back to Guatemala after 12 years of being out of the country because of the civil war in the country. 
and I walked into the bank and there's an ATM machine in the bank and this is the year 2000 now and it had the instructions written in Spanish and followed, it was written in Quiche on the ATM machine so that Indians could plug their little card in there and where did that alphabet come from? It came from God. <laughs> and it's on the ATM machine, you see. And so, you know, th- th- these are the things that have happened over the years just because as a boy... I was willing to say yes to God's call on my life. And this is what he has done. It's just amazing to me. Mm-hmm. I want to interject a question we didn't talk about. Okay, sure. And I was wondering if you could share um, the story of, of how you met uh, Domingo Quichon and what you did in the marketplace yeah. and how that really kind of kicked off. Okay. This. Is that the clock up there I'm supposed to be looking at? Uh, I'll, I'll watch that. Okay, you know, we got, we got, we're good. All right. <laughs> Oh, man. Domingo Quichan became my very best friend. Domingo Quichan had a sugarcane plantation on his own property. His property was like five or six acres. So he planted sugarcane, harvested the sugarcane, and they boil it all down into what they call tapas in it forms a ball when you put the two of them together. So it's sliced in the middle. They wrap it up in um, some kind of reed material, and they'll put, oh, maybe 25 or 30 of those on their back and carry them with a strap across their forehead with ropes tying it under their back down to the marketplace to sell. And that's how he would realize an income to be able to feed his family. Domingo was going one Sunday morning down to the marketplace about 45-minute walk down from the mountains to the marketplace in Hoyabach. That particular morning, either there had been a heavy dew or maybe a light rain, and there were some pine needles on the trail. And with his barefoot, he slipped on the pine needles and was losing his load and mistakenly grabbed the side of his, uh, his hip here. We had his machete, and that machete was razor sharp. And that thing cut him from stem to stern, right from here all the way down to the heel of his hand. And so uh, lost his load over the embankment, folded his hand, the fingers over top of his palm of his hand, tied it up with a red bandana, and came to the clinic that my wife had at that time. He had heard about the American girl that uh, healed people. And so he knocked on Sunday morning. And Sunday morning is the, is the biggest day for the, for the marketplace and the biggest day for the clinic. And so he had this fresh wound, maybe now just an hour old, and walked into the clinic. And when she opened it up, she saw that, you know, it was exposed that there were cut ligaments and all that kind of stuff. I don't want to get into a lot of the detail. She sewed him up. It took 50-some stitches inside and out. Gave him a handful of antibiotics uh, to protect against infection, explained to him. Now, she's speaking in Spanish to him. He does understand some Spanish and uh, explained to him how to take the pills, when to take the pills, and to come back in five days, and she would remove the stitches. Domingo Quichan was faithful. He took the pills, he did what he was told, cleaned that wound, had fresh gauze in it for every day, and then came back on the fifth day to have the stitches removed. She removed the stitches, and he was unbelievably now able to move all of his fingers. He had full use of every one of his fingers. And she knew that there's no physical way possible for that to happen. 
but she always prayed before any patient that she treated, okay? Uh, the antibiotics had their effect. There was no infection. It was nice and dry and clean. And so she took the stitches out. She redressed it, sent him back. Domingo was so grateful. He had brought a chicken under his arm to give to her for payment, okay? That's how they do things down there, okay? Live chicken. Here it is. And he said, isn't there anything else I can do for you? Rachel was sharp enough to say, my husband is interested in learning your language. Would you be willing to teach him? And he said, yeah. He said, when do you want me to come? How about Monday morning? Didn't say a time or anything like that. Six o'clock the next morning. Domingo Kishan is knocking on my door. I was still in bed. And so I got up, went to the door, and there's Domingo. And fortunately, Rachel had told me that he might come on Monday morning, okay? And I kind of sort of didn't expect it. I'd learned by then that oftentimes they say they're going to do something and it doesn't happen, or it happens later. And so there he was at 6 o'clock, and he was eager to teach me to speak his language. And so that was the start of it. Domingo was the one largely who helped me learn the language. Now, I'd go out in the street and meet a lot of people. I learned how to play soccer so that I could learn that kind of language as well. And, uh, and so uh, several months, in fact, a year and a half. After about a year and a half, I had written down with a phonetic alphabet. I didn't know what kind of words or symbols we were going to use for the Mayan alphabet yet, uh, I used the phonetic alphabet, and I had reduced to writing the story of the national hero of the country of Guatemala, whose name is Tecumumang. Well, uh, I had two and a half pages of typewritten stuff here in the phonetic alphabet, and um, uh, I, I practiced it with him so that I would get the right intonation and how to say the words properly. And, uh, and in several weeks went by practicing to say it. And one Sunday morning, he said, well, it sounds real good. He said, uh, I wanted to say it to, the, to other people, too. So I went Sunday morning to the marketplace. I had a bullhorn, and I had maybe three, three and a half pages, typewritten, double-spaced, of the story of Tecumumang. And many people in town, of course, by this time knew who we were, knew my wife had a clinic, and knew I was trying to learn the language. I took the bullhorn and just briefly introduced myself and said, I'd like to read the story of your national hero. I began to read the story. Now, those of you who have been to third world countries and marketplaces in those countries know that there's, there's like a, a quiet hum over the whole place, okay? And people are doing little uh, negotiations here, business deals, okay? They don't want the next person to hear how much this person bought it for because I really might be able to sell it to that person for a little more. So it's in kind of like a quiet thing, and this is just a deal between me and you, okay? And so that kind of thing is going on. And I started with this bullhorn and began to read the story of Tecumumang in the middle of the marketplace. All of a sudden, it got quiet which made me a little nervous. Pretty soon, people started to gather around me. They were understanding the story. And they started to come, and they knew the story. They had been told this story since they were kids. This is passed down from generation to generation to generation. This is who they are. This is their essence. This is uh, their, their character, their personhood. I'm reading about this, and I'm an American, and I'm doing it from a piece of paper. Something 
that had never happened in the history of this town. Now, this is 1971. They had never heard their language read to them from a piece of paper. And this is, I mean, explosions are going on uh, without my even realizing what I'm doing. And so I read the whole story, and there was dead quiet. And it must have taken me 20 or 25 minutes to read the whole story. But I read it as good as I could. And I could see from their eyes that they were understanding, and they were nodding their heads. I got done, and there was dead quiet. And by this time, there was more people before me than there is in this audience this morning. There was hundreds of people standing around listening to this story. They had left their little business deals, and they're, they're coming listening to this American read a story to them from a piece of paper. And, and they're, they're just, it's blowing people's minds. And I got done, and there's an elderly gentleman about halfway back in the crowd. He took his hat off and held it over his heart. I'll never forget that scene. And he said, in all dead seriousness, just stone cold face, read it again. <laughs> so I proceeded to read it again. I'd learned already that the elders in the community are the ones who carry the weight when it makes decisions time. And so I read it again. I finished reading it the second time. Another gentleman over here said, read it again. I read it the third time. And after the third time, uh, there was all kinds of little talking among themselves. And they started to disperse. And three little girls that had squeezed their way in amongst all of these adults came forward. They were attending the public school. And, of course, public school is in Spanish. And they wanted to see what their language looked like on a piece of paper. So I showed them the piece of paper. And they said, they pointed to different words on the page. They say, say this word, say this word, say this word, say this word. You know, and I just went through the whole document, and they wanted me to say the different words, and they could see the symbols, and it wasn't making any sense to them because they weren't Spanish letters, but they were hearing their language. They understood what I was reading, but they didn't understand the symbols on the page. And they said to me afterwards, three little sharp girls, would you teach us to read our language? And that was the first literacy classes that started in the community. And from that, it grew into dozens of people who wanted to learn, read their language. And, and then, you know, it's, it's thousands of people now from that little group of three girls. And those three girls were Catholic girls, and they read from the New Testament. I heard them when I went back in 1985 for the dedication of the New Testament. They were the ones who were reading in the Catholic Mass, you know, the scriptures that the Catholic priest wanted read from the New Testament that, that we had translated, okay? And so, uh, you know, that, 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 that whole translation process, I can remember with Domingo Quixan uh, stopping. And, and this was our, you know, he couldn't read or write. He was not educated. And uh, we had a, a rule that if there was something in here that we were translating that either one of us was uncomfortable with, and in his case, I know it was the Spirit of God moving on his heart. He would come to me, and we would talk about it and say, we need to do this over again because I'm not happy with how it came out. And we'd go over it and over it and over. You know, the Spirit of God is more interested in preserving the integrity and accuracy of this document uh, than I could ever have been. And I was really interested in maintaining the integrity of the Scriptures. And he would move on Domingo's heart. And tell him it's not right. Even before Domingo came to know Jesus. And he's hearing this. You see, I, I personally believe that God chooses dreams and visions and, and, and revelations that are special to reveal himself and his word to people who are illiterate. And so I, I spent a lot of my time in, in Guatemala in ministry uh, uh, 
uh, trying to interpret dreams that people were having, okay? And, and it, it, it almost goes back to Old Testament times there in that regard. But Domingo came to me and he said, I'm not happy. Uh, but you know, Domingo came to know Christ after we completed the translation of the first chapter of Matthew. And that was when we started the translation of the New Testament. I, did, I didn't know that there were easier books to translate. I'd never been taught that. And I just started with Matthew because that's the first book in the New Testament. And we translated the first chapter of the book of Matthew. And we were well on into other books of the Bible after he came back to me and said, um, uh, he said, I want to to receive Jesus as the Son of God in my heart. He said, I know that this is what I'm supposed to do now. And I said, well, why? Why now and all this? And he said that on the basis of the genealogy of Jesus in the first chapter of Matthew, I knew that he was the son of God. And the further we translate, I found out that, you know, he died on the cross. He died on the cross for my sins. He was rose from the dead uh, by, by his heavenly father with power and, 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 and triumphant and all that. And, but what convinced me is his genealogy. And I thought to myself, you know, in my devotional life, I'd go to the genealogies and I'd say, and so-and-so begat so-and-so, and I'd look down with my eyes to the bottom of the page and get to the end of it and say, you know, that's done with, okay? <laughs> but that was the most important part of the scriptures for Domingo Kishan. You know, there's not a little period or comma or T-cross here that the Spirit of God has not inspired. So if the genealogies of Jesus can save Domingo Kishan, the first believer in the country of Guatemala, there's not a part of this book that is not inspired to the salvation of those who read it. Okay? And so uh, you know, this just blew me away. How is it possible that this man comes to know Christ? And he proceeded to tell me the names of his ancestors 14 generations back. I didn't even know the full name of my mother's father. And I'm a college graduate. Okay? But this guy goes back 14 generations, and he knows not only their name, but also something about them. Like we're reading epitaphs from you know, the, a tombstone or something about every one of his relatives. That was important to him. This identified who he was. And Jesus, the Son of God, so much more important than Domingo Kishan has all of this in his background and what he has inherited as the Son of God. And so that's what convinced him. Oh, yeah, he's the son of God, I can tell by Matthew chapter 1. And um, I, I was down there in, in 2004 when God chose, chose to take Now, Domingo uh, was 15 years older than me. He died at age 74. He was hoeing his sugarcane crop, fell over of a cerebral hemorrhage, a stroke, full stroke, uh, fell over in the field. His son was in the field with him, looked up and didn't see his dad, ran over to where he was working, picked him up and carried him into the kitchen of the house. It's a dirt floor. And held him in his arms, sitting on the floor. They called for me. We had cell phones by then. And they called for me to come up the mountain. And this is the first experience I had had personally with the death of one of my friends, one of the believers there in the church. And I sat and watched Domingo pass away. And we'd already talked about his funeral We'd already talked about what was going to be said and how it was going to be handled. He wanted a copy of the New Testament that he had helped me translate it open to the first chapter of the book of Matthew, open on his chest with his bifocals now on top of that. 
inside of the box. So we made sure that we did that. But let me tell you about how Domingo died. It reminded me of Luke chapter 15, the story of the rich man and Lazarus. Remember how the angels came to receive Lazarus? I watched Domingo Guichon with a deformed arm, mouth distorted, drooling down his, his, his jaw, head on his, his chin, right fixed to his chest, uh, you know, in the agony of this, in, in the throes of death. Breathing heavily, those of you who have been around people who have died know what the last breaths are like. All of a sudden, and just his children and his wife and me are sitting on the dirt floor in the kitchen watching him pass. All of a sudden, Domingo lifted his head. There was a smile that came to his lips. He lifted up that hand that had been deformed. And he reached up like this. And his eyes were wide and the smile on his face. And he dropped his head on his chest again. And he passed away. Domingo could see something that we couldn't see. The angels of God, special messengers of God, came to receive this, the first believer. And the next day I had his funeral because in Guatemala you buried within 24 hours. And there were at least 2,500 people that filed past his coffin, shook his hand like they do to say goodbye. People that he had influenced to come to know Jesus as the son of God. And he proved it because of his genealogy to to his own people. But he had led thousands of people to Christ uh, over the years uh, of of his life. So that's the story of Domingo Quixan. We have a a few moments left and I want to take a slight diversion if you're okay, okay with sure. that. Mm-hmm. I'd like for you to share. I know that um, you're far more interested in the individual people that you um, impacted, but I'd like for you to share just how many people, you know, believers are there currently. And then if your concluding comment could be to um, us as a church of what we can do uh, here and what the impact that we can have here and abroad yeah. as the church in, a, in America. When I left Guatemala because of the Civil War in 1983, I had had the privilege of baptizing about 250 believers, people who would come to know Christ since 1968 to 1983. Uh, The New Testament still was not available to them, although it was nearly completed at that time. Uh, we actually had to come out of Guatemala within 48 hours because the threats were so heavy against us and the people that we were trying to help were jeopardized. Their well-being was jeopardized just because we foreigners were living in the time of the revolution going on there. And so our mission board called us out of the country. And I, I stayed behind. My family came up to the States to enroll the kids in a school out near Philadelphia for the 1984-85 school year. I stayed over the summer of 83 in Guatemala, finished the translation of the New Testament and uh, uh, brought it up in little cassette tapes in a briefcase, 27 different cassette tapes, one for each book of the New Testament. And I personally took that briefcase to Edwards Brothers uh, Printers in Ann Arbor, Michigan, where Wycliffe Bible Translators had all of their translations printed at that time. 250 believers were there when I left. Uh, went back 
1985, after the completion of the printing of the New Testament, we ordered 2,500 copies of the New Testament and brought them down with us for the dedication of the New Testament in the fall of 1985. And I left the New Testaments, distributed them amongst the, the few pastors that were available and other leaders in the churches to disseminate them and get them out to the population. Then I pastored a church in Youngstown, Ohio for 12 years, all the while receiving phone calls from the pastors and asking if I could return to do the Old Testament. Finished pastoring uh, the church in, in, in Youngstown, Ohio. Went back to Guatemala in the year 2000. And the church had grown from 250 people to over 35,000 people. Pastors, leaders had gotten the word of God out. They attribute it to the earthquake of 1976, to the civil strife because of the revolution going on, but most importantly to the presence of what is the power of God and to salvation to everyone who believes, the presence of the New Testament. From 2000 to 2009, completed the translation of the Old Testament. The Old Testament and the whole Bible was dedicated in 2009. Okay, Now what does that mean? People of Hoya Bach, 125 about 125,000 people who speak this language finally in 2009 have a complete copy of the Bible. You know, I, I want to encourage your church this morning in several different arenas. Never, never discount the ability and the power that is in the Word of God to accomplish God's objectives in the hearts and lives of those around you, of your own heart and life, okay? The Gideon's ministry is just an outstanding ministry. What the Wycliffe Bible translators do is an unbelievable ministry around the world. And I want to encourage you in that avenue as a church, okay? Adopt, become friends with, help those who are getting the word of God out, okay? Through tracts, through... uh, portions of the scripture. Hand it out yourself. Give it to people. There's all kinds of ways because never ever discount the power that's in this volume to accomplish the changes in whole communities. Right now there's close to 60,000 believers in a population of 125,000 who speak this language as a result of finally the presence of the word of God in the language of these people. So anything you can do, pray, Give, go, support the ministry of uh, the scriptures around the globe.